What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion. It's our show geared for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters primarily. We ask the question every day, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We're coming to you live today from the Birmingham Jefferson Conference Center in downtown Birmingham uh, on the eve of EWTN's family celebration. We'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, later on, and we really put this entire extravagant production on just so that Dr. David Anders has a shorter commute for one day to get to the to the radio <laughs> program. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Um, Charles Beery is back at the studio spinning the dials, producing the program. Your call screener is Rich Jesse and Jeff Burson, magnificent person as always, at the helm for social media. So if you're watching us on you're either watching us on Facebook Live or YouTube. You're not you're not watching both because one of them we don't have a camera here and it doesn't like static images. So one of you is watching us, one of you is not. But if you if you are the one who's watching us, type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program and our host, the aforementioned Dr. David Anders in the shadow of your other office. Yes, I, I, my day job is working for the Diocese of Birmingham about, oh, I don't know, three or four blocks south of here. So it was a very <laughs> short commute today. Now, finding parking, whole nother matter. Right. I got an email here from Mike in Everett, Washington. He said, I recently had a con- conversation with a Protestant relative who claimed that based on John 3.16, we read this just the other day. I'm going to discard this sheet. We won't do that one. We won't do that one. Um... Let's try this one. Pete in the great state of Washington says, Dr. David Anders, a practicing Catholic, goes to confession after a Saturday Mass and communion and dies immediately in a car accident, assuming he or she received absolution after a valid confession and completed penance. Would they go directly to the beatific vision, or is it still possible that they would go to purgatory? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. It's possible that they would go to purgatory, and and the the practice of the church implies this, right? Because the, the the policy would be that you would have a mass said for the repose of this person's soul, regardless of whatever their sacramental reception was prior to death. You're always going to have a mass said because you don't really know what the disposition of that person's heart was when they went to confession. You don't know, you know, what the, their disposition was when they did their penance. And it's possible, of course, that a person can, through an act of perfect contrition and an adequate uh, penance, uh, go directly to heaven. I mean, this is what happened to St. Dismas when he died next to Christ. I mean, his crucifixion was a pretty hefty penance that he accepted. He, he yielded that, said, I'm getting what I deserve. He submitted to the just judgment of the state against him for his crimes, and, and that was expiation for his sins. And Christ says, you're going to be with me today in paradise. So we, we should always have hope in the salvation of any soul. Um, but, uh, but to cover all our bases, we pray for the repose of that soul as well. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. I'm not sure I gave that out at the beginning of the program. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. Um, Timothy from Austin, Texas writes, and he wants to know why in some Catholic theology books do they, men- do they mention, quote-unquote, anthropology? Like in two books on eschatology, Joseph Ratzinger's Eschatology, Death, and Eternal Life, as well as Paul O'Callaghan's Christ, Our Hope, and Introduction to Eschatology, anthropology seems like it would be more related to human societies and cultures. Can you please give some examples reconciling theology to anthropology? Sure, sure. Thank you. So there's a confusion here. Uh, there's an equivocation over the meaning of the word anthropology. And when you hear anthropology, you're thinking about the academic discipline that you would study uh, in a university course that deals with things like you know primitive culture and, and human origins, that sort of thing. Uh, and when theologians use the term anthropology, they're talking about what is the, the Christian view of the human person. Right? That's, and that, that, that could include data derived from that other academic discipline, but primarily derived from philosophy and the data of revelation. So, you know, a key doctrine in Catholic anthropology is that men and women are created in the likeness and image of God. That's foundational to our view of the human person, as well as our view of the nature of salvation, because salvation for a Catholic is the restoration of that image that is effaced by sin. We will be lost in Adam, we regain in Christ, said St. Irenaeus, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. Now, if you take Anthropology 101 at the University of Alabama, uh, you're not going to, well, at any university for that matter, <laughs> you're not going to get the doctrine that men and women are created in the likeness and image of God. That's a, that's a data of Christian revelation, and it's unique to Christian anthropology yeah, and Jewish anthropology as well. well. There might be some that you would get the other. Uh, you might, but Benedictine, it probably... Benedictine, Franciscan University, uh, sure, Ave Maria, sure. maybe. But it's not going to be printed in the Oxford University Press no. uh, textbook that they use. No, right? it will not. Um, Paul writes in, If I can pray or talk to God, a spirit, and can talk to the saints who have passed, can I also talk to the souls of those who are living? An example might be the soul of someone who is gravely ill to whom I can't communicate directly. Yes, thank you. So there is absolutely no precedent for that in Catholic tradition. There's no prayer practice that presumes that God communicates your intentions to another conscious living soul. Uh, Now, obviously, by the power of God, anything's possible to God. God could do that if he wanted to, but it's it's, it's no part of Catholic tradition, and so it would be extremely presumptuous to assume that that worked. And I think uh, you could, you know... A simple experiment would demonstrate that it's not likely to be very effective. I mean, Jack, if I start trying to beam thoughts at your head, you'll let me know if you pick anything up, but I kind of have a feeling you're not going to hear anything. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Maria wants to know, do you have any books to recommend on Catholic history? Um. Oh, gosh, you know, so many that I don't know where to start, but... Uh, you know, a, a good overview of the history of the Catholic Church, like James Hitchcock's uh, History of the Catholic Church, would be, you know, a wonderful place to start. Just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 
3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. You know, two of the most beloved devotions in the church are the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. You can grow in your devotion to the two hearts with a free Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart prayer ebook from us here at EWTN. You can go to EWTN.com slash Catholicism and click on Seasons and Feast Days and lo- download that free ebook today. 833-288-EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Craig in Toledo, Ohio, listening on Annunciation Radio. Craig, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, so Jack, yeah, you were a little in and out there, Craig. Your cell phone's really got a bad connection for us, but I think he was looking for kind of a an overview of universalism. Sure. So I think what I heard was discuss universalism, not just from a proof texting point of view, from a philosophical point of view. Universalism, of course, is the doctrine, not a Catholic doctrine, that that every human being will necessarily be saved, that everyone will experience the beatific vision and the glories of heaven. And, um, you know, I suppose the appeal of the doctrine is... Well, we'd all like to know with certainty that we were saved, and if the whole lot of us is saved, that would be a load off our mind for the time being. And as well as trying to reconcile with God's universal salvific will, because Scripture tells us that God loves everyone and desires that everybody be saved. The Catholic Church, however, does not accept the doctrine of universalism and believes that um, human freedom can and sometimes does defect from the life of grace and cooperation with grace, and that God respects that choice, and, and we can freely choose to exclude ourselves from the divine presence. And, of course, existentially, uh, this is our experience of life. Like grace in our life today is the seed of eternal life begun. We all can have a kind of intimation of the beatific vision, not the full show, obviously, but we can have a kind of intimation in the kind of peace and joy and life and integrity that we can have in, in the life of virtue when we say no to our passions and live for the love of God and neighbor. And, and we, we have these moments in life where we maybe sort of hit that um, that uh, peak moment and we say, yeah, this is great. I wish I could extend this out to all eternity. And when, when you do that, that that's what heaven is. Uh, but contrary-wise, uh, we all know the situation in our life where we're drawn away uh, to some immoderate passion, to some sinful behavior, and there's a part of us that wants to do it. And there's a part of us that says, you know, like St. Paul, in my mind, I don't want to do this. There's something about my appetites that want to do this. My, my mind tells me not to. Yeah, I think I'll just tell my mind to take a hike. I'm going to go do it anyway. And when we do, we inevitably suffer. We, we, we suffer shame. We suffer guilt. We suffer broken relationships. We suffer a lack of a loss of self-respect. Sometimes we might suffer a loss of bodily integrity, do ourselves actual physical harm. There's always a negative consequence. That's why the thing is declared sinful. Sin just is acting irrationally against the proper good of the human person. And yet, we 
you know, we pick the hammer up and hit ourselves in the head with it, right? We just do this, and this is what the life of, of, uh, of uh, moral formation is about, trying to break those bad habits and grow in the life of grace. So, um, you know, in this life, God gives us the freedom to do that and suffer the consequences. Uh, eternity is just an extension of that existential experience. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Next up is Donald in Middlesex, New Jersey, listening on Domestic Church Media. Donald, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Uh, Yes, I was wondering if it's safe to say that Jesus became sin so he could eradicate it on the cross. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. Well, it would be safe to say, because that is a direct scriptural quotation, that is precisely what St. Paul says in in his second letter to the Corinthians, that Christ uh, became sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Now, everything hangs, however, on what you think Paul means when he uses those words. And most biblical interpreters believe that Paul is intending to communicate that Christ becomes a sin offering, which is a type of Old Testament offering. You know, in the Old Testament, worshipers would bring an animal, generally an animal, sometimes agricultural produce of, you know, the plant variety, but usually an animal that they would slaughter and offer that gift to God in either thanksgiving or memorial or satisfaction or, or making atonement for sin. And there were different prescriptions, different types of sacrifices that required different ritual. One of those types of sacrifices was called a sin offering. It is a specific kind of sacrifice. Most interpreters think that when Paul uses this language of Jesus, that he is saying that Jesus made himself like that, like one of those Old Testament sacrifices. If you interpret Paul to mean that Christ became personally culpable for sin, uh, or that our sin was somehow imputed to him, that God looked at Jesus as though he were himself sinful, and that God poured out his wrath on Christ and was alienated from the Son. That's the way the Calvinists interpret that verse. To hold that is to really hold something blasphemous, because it suggests that God is fundamentally unjust, namely that God would punish um, the innocent, that he would impute guilt to an innocent person in order to acquit a guilty person, and that is the definition of injustice. So so did Christ become sin for us? Yes, but in the sense that he became a sin offering to make atonement on our behalf, not in the sense that he himself uh, came to be held personally responsible for our sin. He certainly didn't sin himself. He was, he was utterly innocent. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Lori writes in, if God gave us a rule book of what to believe and do, then why observe Christmas, Easter, etc., since they would not be obligatory as they don't reside anywhere in the Bible? Yes, thank you. Um, I appreciate the question. This is what logicians call an argument that's valid but unsound. Valid because the conclusion follows from the premises, unsound because the premises are false, right? God did not give us a rule book. God did not give us a rule book. That is a Protestant assumption that the Bible is the rule book for Christian life. That is false. The Bible is not the rule book for Christian life. The Bible is more like the liturgical prayer manual of the Catholic Church 
Um, and there isn't a rule book as such derived from divine revelation. There is sacred tradition. There are moral principles that we can discern from reason as well as the data of revelation. And then the church itself uh, lays down a rule book that's not divinely inspired, doesn't claim to be divinely inspired, called the Code of Canon Law. And the Code of Canon Law directs the lives of Catholics, particularly with respect to, to Christian worship, so that they can get on the same page and do things together and, and express their unanimity. So elements of the liturgical calendar are not derived directly from Revelation. They're implied by it. They're, they're ultimately derived from the data of Revelation. And the, the logic of the liturgical calendar is to celebrate the historical life of Jesus throughout the year, that we, we commemorate his birth, his ministry, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, um, as well as the key events in the life of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. And by making this part of the fabric of our lives collectively as the people of God, we, we are constantly reminded to, to recapitulate Christ in our own personalities, to assimilate the aspects of his divine life, his divine personality, into our own. Uh, but this is a historical development. It's something that, that arose over time, and different liturgical feasts all have their own particular history. And there's nothing you know, either magical or necessarily divine about assigning a particular feast day to a particular day. Um, they can be moved, and they have been in the course of Christian history. The church has said, well, you know, we, had, we used to celebrate this feast on this day. Now we're going to celebrate it on that day. Uh, and that's all right. You can do that. And we don't, we don't claim that that's derived directly from Revelation. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. John is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Uh, John, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Hi, Doctor. I've got a question about taking communion to the homebound. Uh, if if an 80-year-old woman that you might be taking communion to has uh, not been in good practice of making her annual uh, Easter duty confession, should you refrain from taking her communion or... Yeah, thank you. So the Church makes extraordinary allowances for people that are in danger of death, and you 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 can you can you can to a certain extent dispense with some of the rules when someone is in danger of death. I'll give you an example in another context. I had a discussion with a friend in another diocese about ministry to those that were in prison. And these would be uh, men, Catholic men, who would have very infrequent opportunity to go to confession. Uh, just because there weren't enough priests to go around, there weren't chaplains assigned to this particular prison. And so he and I had a discussion about, well, you know, could a, could a deacon in good conscience give communion to men that he knew hadn't been to confession in quite a long time? And I took it to a knowledgeable canon lawyer that I knew, and I said, what, what do you take on this? And, and her advice was, she said, well, you know, there's a provision for danger of death, and the way I look at it, if you're in prison, you're in more imminent danger of death than somebody on the outside, right? And, and so I think it's safe. That's just one canon lawyer's opinion, but based on kind of sound moral reasoning. And so, you know, my own involvement in ministry to the homebound and to those in nursing homes is generally has been... Uh, I used to do this with my wife, uh, bring a priest around, uh, bring an extraordinary minister around of Holy Communion, offer Holy Communion. If you have the priest there, you offer confession as well. And um, and I'd say about half the time, if the priest was present, um, 
the patient would say, yeah, I'd like to go to confession. Very often they didn't. And sometimes there was some poor catechesis there. I can remember quite a few, you know, 90-year-old uh, ladies saying, I'm 90, year old, 90 years old and I live in a nursing home. What on earth do I have to confess? <laughs> you know, and, well, you know, you could probably come up with some things, but that was their perspective. And priests didn't insist, you know. You offered community. These are people that many of them, you know, you come back in two weeks and they're gone. And so you don't want to deny them the opportunity for a viaticum. Thanks so much, John. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Terry's watching us on YouTube and asks, I have heard Catholics call the church a living organism versus some total of its members. Can you unpack what that actually means? Um, yeah, so th- this kind of language, of course, we're applying metaphors, and, and some of these are biblical metaphors. And you know, metaphor is not—it's a metaphor, right? It's not—it's not a literal description. It's—it's it's, you're trying to take an image to capture some reality here. And so, I would say that there is a sense in which both of those descriptions are accurate. So, uh, the church is, in a sense, the sum total of her members. Um, the church is all of the baptized who believe in Christ and are united to Him mystically through that sacrament. However, that reality is constructed, it's constituted by a certain form. So Christ, he, he didn't just hand out the sacrament of baptism and say, go have at it, make what you can of the Christian life. He did give us the sacrament of baptism to initiate us into the life of his body, but he also instituted structures within that body, like the papacy, like the episcopacy, like the priesthood, uh, like like holy marriage, for example, and these are foundational institutions that are a permanent part of the church's identity, and all of them, of course, coalesce uh, in a kind of organic unity under the head, which is Christ Himself. And the church will always exist in this form. You're always going to have the the people of God, and the people of God means the clergy and the laity. It's not just it's not just the laity. The people of God is the whole show, and all of us are members of the of the people of God. Um, but then that people of God is hierarchically organized uh, in a determinate way by the institution of Christ. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Uh, Ben in Rapid City, South Dakota says, The other day, a Pentecostal friend of mine posted an article on Facebook that said, What did Jesus mean when he said, Depart from me, I never knew you? The answer he gave was that Jesus makes a distinction between results and fruit. He seeks a heart that is devoted to him, relationship with other believers, and real joy in worship. He is uninterested in the mighty works of those who do not abide in him. Does this interpretation square with the Catholic understanding of what Jesus meant in this passage? Uh, not at all. Not not in the slightest. And I, it's very interesting that this fellow seems to suggest that what saves you is ecstatic experiences of Pentecostal worship in the context of community. <laughs> that is not surprising, given that he's a Pentecostal, and that's central to his spirituality. Uh, so he's, he's just explained away um, everything that the New Testament says about the life of heaven— there's really nothing in sacred scripture from Genesis to Revelation that, success, that suggests that the way to get to heaven is to have ecstatic experiences of charismatic worship. Not at all. In fact, the one place in the scripture where charismatic worship is addressed directly 
Paul says that if you do this without charity, and he means specifically love to neighbor that has real teeth that, that eventuates in the giving of food to the hungry and clothe, clothing to the naked and drink to the thirsty, that if you do that charismatic thing without charity, then you are a, a clanging gong or a banging cymbal, uh, you know, a big bunch of noise and, and no there there. And at the end of the day, Paul says, three things remain, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of them is charity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Coming to you live from the site of the EWTN Family Celebration, this is called to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We're asking the question as we do every day: What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Next up is Richard in Barrington, Rhode Island, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Richard, thanks so much for holding through the break. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. Go right ahead. I have a quick question. That really is, I have, was uh, married for 23 years, uh, and I was a Catholic for 23, married for 23, and we went the Protestant way, sad to say, and my wife divorced me. So uh, I was in the process of an annulment because of the long stretch of marriage. It won't go that route. So my quick question is, if I, as I start going back to the Catholic Church, which I am, um, the question is, how can I still be married to my former wife from the Catholic side and still go to church with my wife now? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So if, if, um, uh, if you have not received an annulment for your previous marriage, then in the mind of the Catholic Church, you are still presumed to be married to that, to that first person. An annulment, it's important to understand, an annulment is not a Catholic divorce. It's not just the, the Church validating the civil divorce. Uh, it's, the, the annulment is not a judgment that a, a once valid marriage has now been ended. The annulment is the determination that there was never a valid marriage there to begin with. And so, in Catholic teaching, if there's a valid marriage, it can never end. I mean, Jesus says, what God has joined together, man cannot separate. And so the church's position is, anytime you represent yourself as married, the church says, okay, we take you at your word. We're going to presume that you're married to the person that you say you're married to. And, and presuming that, we have to conclude that such a marriage can never end in principle except by death. And so if you want to marry again, then either you have to demonstrate that that first marriage was not a valid marriage, or the spouse has to die. And so until you get that annulment, the annulment, if you receive the annulment, will be the church's judgment that you never did have a valid marriage to begin with. And you say, well, you've married 22 years. That's an awful long time. That's true. And that may play into the church's judgment. But if they make the judgment of nullity, it will be because they find something wrong at the root. There was something at the beginning of the relationship that rendered the marriage invalid such that it will be understood to have always been invalid. It was never a valid marriage. 
and then you can lawfully marry in the Catholic Church, and then you could go to Mass with your, with your spouse. However, if you're still waiting on an annulment, you haven't received it, if you attempt to contract marriage with somebody else, well, you won't do that in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would not, would not perform that wedding ceremony. And if you go outside the Church, say, to a Justice of the Peace or a Protestant Church, the Church is not going to regard that as a valid marriage. And so somebody who's divorced their spouse, has taken another one, does not have an annulment, has not been married in the Catholic Church, would not be permitted to partake of Holy Communion because, see, the presumption would be, well, looks like fornication. looks like you're living with somebody that you're not married to. That's why what we have to do is we have to wait for the Church's tribunal to work through the data, make a finding of fact to determine if there really was a valid marriage there uh, to begin with. Now, take heart. Very often, I'd say more often than not, the Church will come back and decide for nullity, give that annulment, and you can go about your business. But we have to put the thing at the judgment of the Church's tribunal. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Sam is in Taylorville, Illinois, listening to WUON Radio. Um, Sam, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have a question. I'm an extraordinary minister. I have been for quite a few years. And I take, uh, on Sunday, on the weekends, I take communions to almost 50 people. Uh, five nursing homes. Uh, and uh, I was given a book called Get Me Out of Here. And it says in there that we shouldn't be extraordinary ministers. The pastor should do all the passing and communions. And these people would just would not get communion unless I take it to them. And I was just wondering what, uh, what, the, what I should do about this. Yes, thank you. So I, I presume that you take, you're an extraordinary minister and that you take communion to those in nursing homes with your pastor's permission, correct? That's correct. All right. And, and he does this with his bishop's permission. And the bishop allows this in line with the law of the universal church. And so here is a very helpful rule of thumb for Catholics. If the church permits it and some wackadoodle book says the church is wrong, you go with the church and not the wackadoodle book, right? I mean, th- this is what you call somebody's private theological opinion. And look, we all have private theological opinions. I've got them. Jack's got them. They are private opinions. They're our own private opinions. They are not church law. And uh, and look, the, the person who has the private theological opinion, I should not be an extraordinary minister, well, that person should not be an extraordinary minister. By all means, they should stick with their conscience and not do that ministry, but they cannot impose that as a law on the rest of the church, and they cannot forbid what Holy Mother Church has allowed. And since the church allows this, in your case specifically, and generally throughout her, throughout all the parishes of the, of the Roman Rite, um, then, uh, then it's allowed. And that's all you need to know, because Christ said to the church, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven, and boy, you've been loosed. <laughs> God bless you. We appreciate the phone call, Sam. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Hank, Hank rather, is in Kansas City, Kansas, watching us on YouTube. Hank, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hi there. <clears throat> uh, my question is whether... Annulments, canonizations, and Lenten Friday abstinence, that those sorts of things, are infallible. 
And if they're not, how do Catholics explain their real authority? Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the question. So let's say you said you said um, canonization, annulments, um, annulments and, and Lent and abstinence. Okay. So um, canonization is different from the other two. Canonization is understood by theologians to be what they call one of the secondary objects of the Church's charism of infallibility because it pertains uh, to the worship to, to the Church's holy worship. Like we, we invoke saints in worship. It's in the liturgical calendar. It's really kind of essential to Catholic identity. So canonization is protected by the charism of infallibility. But uh, the judgment of marriage tribunals and uh, is not, all right? Uh, this is not, this is a legal ruling. It's a finding of fact, um, and there's no uh, there's no charism that guarantees that the church will always make the correct judgment in the finding of fact about you know some particular matter, uh, some contingent historical matter, and uh, and the the rule about uh, Friday fasting is uh, is uh, this is a canon, this is a law that the church has laid down, and it doesn't claim to do so on the basis of divine revelation. And so uh, questions of infallibility or fallibility don't come, and that's a category mistake. It'd be sort of like asking whether, you know, the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was infallible. The question really has no meaning, and uh, Sammy Hagar will be happy to know about that, right? But um, it's just a—this is a a positive law that the Church has laid down for the good of the people of God, but it, it could in principle be abrogated or changed, as it has been over time. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Mike is in Houston, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Anders and staff. Um, question about receiving Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin. And let me, let me discuss this and ask two questions. As a returning Catholic and and in 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 good standing now with the Church, finally, I had to sit out for a good year without receiving Holy Communion, and I used to watch hundreds of people come up and receive Holy Communion. And my question in my mind was always, without judging, trying not to judge anyway, how many of these people have not been to confession in months, if not years? And I, I, I never heard a sermon. Or I don't recall hearing a sermon about the necessity of making sure that your sins, especially your mortal sins, are confessed before receiving communion. And it, it's almost to me like there's a check the box attitude with some Catholics around communion. And your, your, I wanted to hear your, your comments on it, Dr. Anders. Thank you. Thank you. So the phenomenon that you're describing of a kind of uh, willy-nilly uh, embrace of Holy Communion as if this is somehow the, the absolute right of all Catholics without description every week or as often as they go to Mass or see Communion, uh, that is a novelty in, in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. That's, that's not historically been the practice at all. And for a very long time in, in Western Catholic history, the practice was for the laity to commune only once a year, only once a year at Easter, and prior to Holy Communion, it was necessary that they be examined uh, by their curate, by their parish priest, to determine uh, that they that they were in the state of grace, uh, best as we can determine that in this life, no, no gross sin in their life, and that they were repentant for their sin. And even then, 
those strictures were tougher than we would see today in the confessional. So, you know, it wasn't enough even for somebody to go to the confession and say, you know, I'm sorry, and I, you know, I'm contrite, the priest would absolve them. Uh, and if a confessor might really examine them about their mode of life and their practices and might draw things out and say, well, hey, you know, aren't you still doing this kind of thing over here? Um, well, yeah, I'm still doing that too, Father. And, oh, well, I'm not going to admit you to communion until you promise that you're going to give that up. You know, and, and if you've ever read the sermons of St. John Vianney, the, the Curie of Isle, one of those famous parish priests in the history of the Latin Rite, um, he was pretty tough. I mean, he would tell he would tell people, you know, I'm not going to admit you to your Easter communion if unless you give up the, the the swearing, drinking, dancing, and gambling. You know, I mean, he really wanted to reform people's lives, and and uh, he complained about folks that would go down the street, you know, to the parish down the hill where Father would hand out communion a little bit more liberally, uh, because he was strict about actually making them reform their lives. Um, now, uh, it, Pope Pius X changed the practice of the Church in the 20th century to encourage more frequent communion because he thought that frequent communion could be a great spiritual benefit. And, of course, that's true. And, and there are soul, there have always been souls throughout history that have communed frequently, generally with the permission of a confessor, not just taking it on their own initiative. Um, and that, but, uh, but opening that door has led to, um, we can, there's no denying it, to a more casual attitude about communion. And there are those that have grown up, you know, uh, in the 20th century for whom the idea of, infrequent communion is almost unthinkable. They just think that's the point of going to Mass. I go to Mass to receive communion, and it's kind of presumption. And that, I think that's a shame. I really do. And why is it a shame? What, what, are, the, what are the spiritual dangers that can come from that? Well, if it's one thing to, to take communion casually. It's another thing to take it sacrilegiously. A person could go frequently to communion and not really consider the dignity of what they're doing and yet really commit no grave sin. Uh, might not be all that spiritually fruitful, but you know it wouldn't be a grave sin. But to go to communion in the state of mortal sin, Paul tells us, St. Paul tells us, is to sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And this is a very grave sin. It's called a sacrilegious communion. And if you make a habit of sacrilegious communion, here's what I think. You don't even have to be a Catholic to see that this would be the case. Um, here is something the Catholic Church claims to be the most august, noble, dignified form of Christian worship that should that should be the occasion of my total consecration of self to God. And if I make a habit of considering myself to be in intimate relationship with God, which is what communion presupposes, while I leave my moral life utterly unattended to, well, what am I telling myself performatively over time? Well, that I don't need to change my moral life. And this, this has to lead to the hardening of the conscience. Right? If I, if I don't take seriously uh, coming into the presence of God and the necessity of moral reformation and internal purity to do that, uh, then, then I'm never going to do it. Then I'm never going to get my moral life straight. And so it, it, it absolutely leads to a hardening of the conscience that could have eternal consequences. So, yeah, it's a problem. Now, I think that from your point of view sitting in the pew watching people go to communion, your determination not to pass judgment is absolutely the right one. Right, and uh, you shouldn't do that. And uh, you, you know, we need to take the log out of our own eye and not the splinter out of our neighbor's eye. Uh, but there is one who can, who is given the care of souls in the parish, uh, for whom this question is is uh, should be one of pastoral discernment, and that's the pastor of the parish. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We've been talking about this family celebration for months now, and it is upon us. Join us tomorrow right here in Birmingham, Alabama, for uh, great talks from your favorite EWTN radio and TV hosts. You can stop by EWTN's religious catalog that's set up just to our right here in the big north hall of the BJCC. You can attend Holy Mass. You can be part of a televised show. And this is going to be amazing. The day culminates with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham, Simply go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration to find out more and to register. You can still get here, and it is all free. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. David writes in, I've been reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I found a passage that has me confused. The end of paragraph 460 states, For the Son of God became man so that we might become God the only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he, made man, might make men gods. Can you please explain what is meant by this? Yep, absolutely. Very misunderstood passage of the Catechism drawn from uh, the works of St. Athanasius and consistent with the entire uh, patristic tradition. So this is the doctrine of divinization or theosis. And uh, it's absolutely part of the church's doctrine. It's part of the sacred scripture because Peter says in 2 Peter 1 4 that through the promises of Christ we become participants in the divine nature. So, what does that mean? Here's what it does not mean we are not like drops of water that get absorbed into the ocean of the Godhead, right? And that's, that's the mistake that many people think when they hear this. They think that Catholics are teaching some sort of, say, Hindu monism where, where our, we become identical to the Godhead. That is not what is being affirmed. Uh, neither are we affirming what the Mormons claim, which is that each of us gets to be our own little god of our own little world. Neither of those is the Catholic position. The Catholic position is very simple. It's that we are made godlike. We're made godlike. Maximus the Confessor uh, distinguished being created in God's image from being created in God's likeness. And, and he said, well, the image is not effaced by sin. You still have rationality and freedom and that kind of thing, and moral responsibility. But that likeness is that character, that mind of Christ, that conformity to Jesus that gives us a godlike character where we love God, we love neighbor, and we desire what God desires. And that's that's what divinization means, just coming to reflect God's likeness in our own character. But we retain our own distinct human personalities and, and, uh, and we're metaphysically, ontologically distinct from God. Uh, Kate is watching us on YouTube, and she says, List, uh, or she's actually watching on, uh, on uh, Roku, YouTube on Roku. Um, she said, "I'm very sympathetic to Catholic to the Catholic expression of the Christian faith. I was very moved by the life of Saint Teresa of Avila, a godly woman and a true saint. Also Saint Bernadette and others. I accept, obviously, that Mary, Jesus's mother, has eternal life, eternal blessedness, etc. But what I don't get is Marian visions." Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate the question. So um, you actually don't have to believe. In the, uh, in the truthfulness of any particular historical apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary to become a Catholic, uh, because none of these things are a part of Catholic dogma. Um, uh, and even though Catholics have great devotion to, say, Our Lady of Guadalupe or Our Lady of Lourdes or, or, or what have you, um, such devotion to a particular apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary is not part of Catholic dogma and is not necessary. When you become Catholic, what you say as a convert is, I, I believe everything the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God. 
the Catholic Church doesn't declare that any of those specific apparitions is in fact divine revelation. All the Catholic Church declares about any particular historical claim to an apparition is that some apparition is safe, right? That, 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 that there's no harm in that particular veneration, and there may be grounds for believing in its, that it's vertical, but it doesn't make that a matter of divine revelation. It doesn't say this is, this is a dogma of the faith, you have to believe this. You don't have to believe that. Um, now, I think you would have to conclude that it is possible, this would be kind of a, it's not a, it's not a doctrine taught by the extraordinary magisterium, but I'd say it would be implied by the, the ordinary magisterium of the church, that, uh, that if God desired, he certainly could cause Mary to appear to the faithful. Right, so you'd have to believe that, and look, that's in Scripture. The idea that that from time to time, uh, saints from the beyond make appearances to souls on earth. I mean, that's that's in the the, the account of the Transfiguration when the disciples see Moses and Elijah. Uh, that's in the account of uh, the prophet Samuel who appears to King Saul. That's that's in the Book of Maccabees when Jeremiah appears to the Judeans who are getting ready to go to war uh, with the Seleucids. I mean, so there plenty of occasions in Scripture where souls from the beyond have appeared to the faithful on earth. And so that such things are possible, that God could do that, yeah, that's part of the Catholic tradition, part of the biblical tradition, but not any particular apparition. And, um, and so uh, the, there is kind of an apparatus that has grown up around particular apparitions, um, you know, specific devotions, per- particular forms of piety um, that the Church recognizes are very helpful and useful to some people and uh and and so you know we you would never say well you shouldn't do that never say that the church permits it um but but spirituality is an individual thing and so i I always urge people you know the church has is replete with spiritualities there's not just one catholic spirituality and um and so there are places in the catholic world where say you know, Our Lady of Fatima, to take an example, is a very popular uh, apparition among members of the Latin Rite. Not so much among Eastern Rite Catholics. They don't really have a tradition of venerating Our Lady of Fatima, right? They, they have their own Marian apparitions that they like, right, you know? And, um, and so, and then beyond the devotional spirituality, there are, there are contemplative spiritualities. I think you mentioned in your uh, message that you like Teresa of Avila. Well, you know, there's the whole world of Carmelite spirituality, none of which is grounded in apparitions. It's all about the the uh, examination of the interior life through the through the lens of grace. Uh, you know, you've got Franciscan spirituality. You have you have uh, uh, Ignatian spirituality, uh, Salesian spirituality. All, all these different paths, all of which ultimately have the same goal, which is how can I be conformed in my mind, will, imagination, uh, to the mind of Christ. And so you, you find the spirituality in the church that, that works for you, given your state of life, given your culture, background, uh, intellectual history, and so forth. Um, and the ultimate goal, of course, as Paul tells us, is charity. So if some devotion doesn't do it for you, you find another devotion or another spirituality. 833-288-EWTN. Next up is John in Vancouver, Washington, listening on, listening on Modern Day U Radio. John, you're on with Dr. Anders. Thank you very much. Uh, great, great service you're providing to all of us. Uh, quick question and, and a little tag, too. Uh, the whole thing about uh, receiving first Holy Communion unworthily. So our daughter died three years ago. 
our two sons not practicing. Of course, they were there. It was during COVID. There was a small group. I approached the pastor, who I know well, and he knows me well. And I said, you know, I don't think these guys are in, in a condition to be going up there. And he said, John, don't make it an issue right now. And, uh, you know, I think I know what you're going to say, Dr. Andrews, but uh, yeah, I was a little queasy about that, him saying, you know. And then one other unrelated question, can I not give scandal as a Catholic if I attend a gay wedding? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So on the first one, you know, if you've ever watched the Mass at EWTN, you know that before every Mass, uh, they read a statement that says, don't come to communion if you're not Catholic, or if you are Catholic but you're not properly disposed. So they, they make the general statement, you shouldn't do this if you're not properly disposed or if you're not Catholic. What they don't do is ask for, you know, like a card. You don't have to present your credentials when you go up for communion. And that seems to me to be a sound policy. So a pastor, whether at a funeral or a wedding or whatnot, can make that kind of general statement. But I think prudently, um, you know, you, you should make the statement and then, and then let the conscience of the individual soul determine whether they've met that standard or not. In, most, in many cases, there could be exceptions, obviously, if there's someone that's, you know, known publicly to be in kind of scandalous situation. Um, and uh, and in, a, in a really sensitive moment, like a funeral, for example, um, you know, you ha pastoral sensitivity is required because these are these are the instances where a person's relationship to the church can be made or broken forever. You know, and when and when when priests are insensitive, when clergy are insensitive to to really, really, really touchy areas of life, and they they come barging in with the law and without an ounce of mercy. Um, that can alienate a person from the church forever, and that doesn't mean they should be careless in distributing communion. So it's a fine line to walk. Can you go to a gay wedding and not give scandal? I don't see how you could do that. I don't see how it would be possible to go without without scandal. Um, you know, I mean, there are, there, are, there are things that you could do in the life of that, for lack of a better word, couple, uh, to show goodwill, but without showing... Um, that you formally cooperate or agree with, you know, the nature of the union as such. God bless you, John. We appreciate the uh, phone call today. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener, Rich Jesse, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in for Tom Price today. Again, we're coming to you live from the BJCC, the uh, scene for tomorrow's EWTN family celebration. Um, I would encourage you, if you have any means to get here, do so. We'll be back at it again on Monday. God bless.